Hello and welcome to the podcast On Mike with Jordan Rich, where we gather with creative people from all walks of life to share stories and inspiration. Today, we have an artist and a writer. His name is Giles LaRoche. He's been drawing for as long as he can remember, and his specialty seems to be buildings and structures and edifices and bridges, and he's authored and illustrated several books that are absolutely fascinating and delightful to look at. Books such as Bridges Are to Cross, Sacred Places, What's Inside, Fascinating Structures Around the World, and If You Lived Here. He's got a new one we'll be talking about today called Lost Cities which really piques my interest because I'm a lover of history. And the artwork, which we'll talk about, is really spectacular. So I look forward to taking a look back, say, two or 3,000 years with a man who's done just that for us in a book called Lost Cities. His name is Giles LaRoche, and he joins me, Jordan Rich, as we are about to go on mic. I am so thrilled to welcome Giles LaRoche to the program, a fellow author here in the New England area, and not only that, but a brilliant artist and somebody who's woven together the art and the stories in lost cities that we'll talk about. Giles, I'm looking at your uh, backdrop, and it's very colorful. Uh, You're an artist, so I would imagine you'd have the appropriate backdrop, but I see some what looks to be artwork. Is that all of your work behind you? It is. It is. A lot of my reference books above the artwork and um, I've been experimenting with three-dimensional works, and that's what—that's exactly what you, you're looking at directly behind my head. And then on an easel to my right is one of the illustrations from Lost Cities. I love it. I, I love need it. To talk to you about that. My workspace, as I mentioned, is upstairs, and um, I'm unable to wire my camera so that we can actually be up there. But I brought some a lot of the artwork down and uh, I can show you many examples as we talk. Well, this is a coffee table book, if that term is still in use, but it's a book for children and adults. It's fabulous. Before we talk about the content, let's talk about the art employed and what device or what genre are we finding ourselves in? Well, I, I call it cut paper relief and it's a combination of drawing cutting out what I've drawn and then painting the shapes, gluing them together and assembling them into a, and, and to create a kind of uh, bar relief. But unlike a clay bar relief, it's, you know, the material is, is paper. I use a variety of papers from the thinnest tracing papers to copy paper to uh, more durable Bristol board papers, watercolor papers, printmaking papers. All the paper is white. So everything is, you know, as I said, carefully drawn and then cut out with an exacto knife. And then the pieces are painted with uh, acrylic paint, watercolor, gouache, and, and then they're, they're assembled. It, it looks like a, a painstaking process. How, how much time does it take a, an artist of your caliber to create one page of this book, let's say? You know? It could take anywhere from several days to several weeks and sometimes months, depending on the level of detail in, in the particular illustration. Some of the Lost Cities illustrations, particularly um, Anchor Watt and let's see, Babylon, um, Jamestown, you know, really have a lot of detail. And so I, I found myself worrying about meeting my deadline <laughs> I have to have the art finish at by a certain point or otherwise the book will be delayed in its production so um, you know I'm working pretty dil- diligently nine to five every day and weekends 
And I work at night. I love to work at night, too. I can listen to the radio. <laughs> Thank you. You're a double threat because not only are you an artist of some repute, great repute, but you're also a writer and a historian. And uh, the idea for this is is interesting to trace. Let's take, take a look at that and where you came up with the idea to do Lost City. Sure. I, I think calling myself an historian is a bit of a stretch. I do love history. And uh, I love the history of, of architecture and of art particularly. And so I jumped at the opportunity to, to work on this book. Prior to this book, I, uh, I worked on a title called If You Lived Here, Houses of the World. I think the title says it all. It's a book, it's a book about different houses. And I try to get kids to imagine what it would be like to live in these different places, these different houses and types of houses. As a follow-up, my editor and I talked about, well, what do we do next? And I was thinking, I'd love to do a book about towns or cities. And somehow the term lost cities came up and, I, and we both got kind of excited about it. And I, and I said, well, I'll get to work and, on it and see what I can do. So I, first thing I did was, uh, you know, we have a lot of books in this house and I scrambled through a lot of books and I tried to think of places I had been you know, that would be interesting to include like Akrotiri, uh, one of the Greek islands. And so I put together some sketches and showed them to my editor. And we thought, well, this is a go. So I got a contract and um, it was just a matter of my doing more reference and uh, sketches and I got going. Uh, Ancient history isn't taught that much. And and those of us who studied it may have forgotten a lot of it. So it's a great reminder and refresher course on some of these in a fun way. And in each chapter, and you can discuss how and why this came about, you have details like the location, who lived there, but what's mysterious about this place? That was my favorite part. I'm sure a lot of people are saying that as well. The kids love the the what's mysterious question. When I'm, I love to, I visit elementary schools in and around the uh, Boston area and I bring my my original art with me and a copy of the book and I get kids to gather around me maybe you know one or two classes at a time and with Lost Cities I brought all of the art and I, I would put the pieces up on an easel in sequence as they appear in the book and I you know I talked to the kids about the creation of the artwork but then I'd ask them to ask me one of the questions why was it lost and then of course I'd have to answer why how was it found and, but their favorite question of all was, of course, what's mysterious? And uh, I'm happy to answer that for them. Can you answer a few of these for us, just to tease the audience? Because they're, they're a lot of fun. I'm just flipping through at random. Great Zimbabwe. I should mention, by the way, that there are, are examples of lost cities on most continents, in fact, not almost all, including mm-hmm. the, the, the New World we'll talk about. But uh, in Great Zimbabwe, the mystery has to do with certain statues, soapstone statues of birds and their human lips and toes. Tell us a bit more. Just just whet our appetite, if you will. Well, I, I wish I could explain it all. It's it, That's why it's a mystery. But um, the enclosures, by, by the way, I'm just showing one of the enclosures at at Great Zimbabwe. There are num- There were numerous enclosures, and that's how they could accommodate a population of nearly 15,000 people. But on the top, along the tops of the walls of the enclosure, at, at certain intervals are these stone statues of birds, which happen to have human features, and no one knows exactly why. 
um, they're thought to depict some of the, the rulers of Great Zimbabwe or the kings, but some of the people just thought they symbolize or their combination of the birds, you know, native to that area and, and depictions of the rulers. And isn't that the Zimbabwe flag has a, uh, the emblem That's involving right. the birds that we're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, that, I found that interesting. One of the things that's really cool, and your artwork is brilliantly uh, illustrative of this, is the amount of detail that these ancient civilizations were able to employ in building and constructing some of the world's greatest structures. So obviously, when people know about the pyramids. That's the first one that people think of. But uh, you have example after example of some incredible architecture. Even looking at Machu Picchu, which is here on the Western Hemisphere side of things, Buildings that look like uh, they would take major bulldozers and and major cranes to develop, and yet people did it without any of those tools. What are some of your favorite examples of architecture in the book? I have no favorites. They're all favorites in a way. But I was intrigued, particularly by Anchor Watt, as I was as I was working on I'm it. I'm looking at the that more too. I looked at it, the more I could find hidden faces and and uh, you know uh, towers and sections of temples and walls that really got me going so we decided to use that on on the title page of the book and you know i try to get kids to imagine what it would look like i mean what what life would be like for them living in these various cities how would they get around trying to get to anchor what here oh this this is a favorite tinak chitlan i just love the the step pyramids here um and the walls that's, that, that surround them. This is a kind of man-made island. Think of the, you know, how the back bay was filled in. Um, and this is what later became Mexico City. But it looks like a floating um, island. And then it almost is a floating island. Almost every one of these cities that ultimately was lost was built around defense and safety and protection for the population, right? I mean, the idea that uh, invading hordes would be kept out by the edifice was was key, I imagine. It, it's true. I mean, history is not pretty. <laughs> you know, reading about S- Spanish history, for instance, it's just one battle after another, and, and, you know, thousands and thousands of castles were constructed, and each of those castles and each of the villages that they were in was so completely surrounded by, by walls. And so a lot of these... Lost cities are, are surrounded by walls, too. Not necessary so much on Machu Picchu because of, you know, naturally being so high up, it was, mm. it was difficult to reach. I have a question that uh, has always intrigued me, and you bring this one up, and that is Easter Island and those famous statues that sort of uh, guard the island. And there are all kinds of speculation as to where they came from and who put them there and why. Tell us what that chapter deals with, uh, in your estimation? Uh, here, I was intrigued by the fact that um, it was such a remote island. How did it get settled in the first place? And uh, what was what was living, you know, like there like being, you know, so detached from the rest of the world? Um, and then why were, the, why were these statues erected? And whom do they represent? How were they... How are they moved? And there are, there are questions that I really find myself struggling to answer too. And uh, all of the sources uh, that I, you know, went through doing my research didn't all all come to the same conclusion. So I had to kind of uh, 
you know, find the most recent studies and, and uh, base my illustration on um, and and my you know the text on on what I found there. There's a timeline, and it's very helpful. Again, I, I was loving this because uh, I need to always bone up on my history, and I just love when things are condensed so that I can figure them out. I'm a simpleton. And I love the timeline, and it starts with a place called Karnak, and it's not Johnny Carson's routine with the big turban. Uh, Karnak. Oh, I remember that. Remember yeah. that? But Karnak, uh, you say first monuments are built 3100 BCE, which means before the Common Era. That's uh, that's an old civilization. What what can you tell us about that first one in the book? Because it's kind of interesting. Well, I, I wanted to do things chronologically, mm-hmm. and of course, it was hard not to include Egypt. And um, I wanted to, you know, be sure to have a an Egyptian temple. And I thought it it would be wonderful to be, to be able to show it as a ruin on the introduction page right and uh, then to see it when it was newly built and to show the people of the people who lived there parading into the temple to worship their sun god mm. amun amun is known as the hidden one you say believed to die at sunset only to become reborn each day with the rising sun and of course sun worship was very popular back then not like the sun worshipers of today but uh, very popular indeed that's the karnak temple and it's so beautifully structured so you based your artwork on uh, the restorations, photographs, or guesses of folks who dug them up, the archaeologists? I have a, we have a, in this house, I hold a collection of architectural books, and um, that's what I use mostly as, as my, as my mm-hmm. reference material. So as a, as a studier of the architecture then and now, uh, there are things that have carried over, right? I mean, uh, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but... You look at some of these structures, and you can imagine a modern structure following the same design, the same blueprint. Well, yeah, it, it, that's so true. Uh, this doesn't quite relate to what you, you what you're saying, at least in the beginning of my response here. But um, I try to get kids to imagine what life would be like, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and also try to get them to think how there were civilizations evolving in different parts of the world and they were unaware of each other. People living in South America were, didn't know that there was a North America. They didn't know there was an Africa. They didn't know there was an Asia and a Europe. And yet all of these um, civilizations sort of were evolving at the same time. And um, eventually they they've discovered each other. And... Um, realized that some of the some of what they were doing had similarities, a lot of differences, but 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 a lot of similarities. I think um, in today's world, there's we, you know we see in Art Deco architecture, for instance, um, Moorish influence. We can see you know uh, uh, horseshoe arches and pointed windows and and that sort of thing. I want to go back to something you mentioned. You you talk to a lot of school kids, and I think that's terrific. They must love the uh, exposure to this. Imagine history thousands of years old, and it's coming alive on the page. I would imagine that they they get a kick out of that. They do. When I when I visit a school, before I begin my presentation, before I sh- start showing the art and reading to them with with this book especially, I ask them um, if they can imagine what life would be like. 100 years ago what what would they not have 
Um, and what, what would their roles be every day? What would they do when they got up in the morning? Um, and then I asked them about a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago and remind them that they're of all the things that they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have running water, they wouldn't have electricity, they wouldn't have a car, they wouldn't have a computer, um, they might not even have books. So many things that, that you know, we take for granted today that they, they would not have. And what roles would they play? Would they help their parents um, build their house? Would they help their parents grow their food? And that sort of thing. And, and, and you know, kids begin to, to uh, think about this. And, and then I can start showing them examples, you know. I start with the timeline and point out that um, there are young versions or there are uh, prehistoric versions of them in, in this illustration of the, the, uh, the, uh, the figures. These are figures that I use in the spot illustrations and for the timeline. And kids try to find them within the, um, the uh, finished illustrations. Oh, that's that's fun. see themselves. That sounds fun. By the way, um, th one of the factoids in each chapter has to do with why these cities went away. Why was it lost? And there's one, of course, uh, we know why specifically. Some you don't know exactly what happened. Uh, so history's blurred. But the, uh, I hope I'm saying it right, Herculaneum, is that the way you say yeah. it? Which was part of Italy, a part of the Roman Empire. Tell us, because uh, this will hit a nerve with people, tell us what happened to that city and why that was lost? Well, um, it was a neighbor, neighboring part of uh, Pompeii. If it was kind of a resort city, unlike Pompeii, which is the real and much larger working class city, Herculaneum was a small um, resort and um, it had a great library called the Villa of the Pepperoni, just, you know, to outside the city of Herculaneum, very close. And um, inside that villa are, are, are a collection of papyrus scrolls, which, um, you know, say a lot about the history of Herculaneum, and they're still being deciphered today. And we're going to learn a lot about what life was like at that time from those scrolls. But one day, the date is in the book, I don't know it quite, quite offhand, but there was, a there was a volcano behind um, the city of Herculaneum and Pompeii, Vesuvius. And Vesuvius um, erupted pretty much without warning. I mean, they knew that it had smoked before and, was, had, and had been threatening, but this time um, it, it gave way and, and it, it exploded and it covered the city of Pompeii and Herculaneum with a, you know, a blanket of, of lava. Mm. Mm. And um, that's what actually helped to preserve a lot of the um, right. artifacts and the architecture, and especially Herculaneum. Right, the people frozen in place. It's, it's it eerie. Yeah. If you've been to Italy, uh, get a chance to see that. It's a very mm -hmm. bizarre and yet uh, accurate look at what was going on at that point and on, on that day. There's one more I have to ask you about. I'm always intrigued by the seven wonders of the world, and uh, a few of them exist today. But the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, it always sounds like a punchline to a joke, but it's not. It's, it's an actual structure and involving gardens in the city of Babylon. What was that all about? Just remind me, if you will. It's funny because at, when I was working on um, 
my preliminary sketches and doing my research, I happened to turn on the television and I was watching a program about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And uh, um, this, this uh, researcher was trying to, to um, let's see, she was trying to prove the fact that the Hanging Gardens were not actually in Babylon, but outside of Babylon and near closer to a city called Nineveh, where there was more water. But some scholars do believe that there was there was a smaller version of the Hanging Gardens within Babylon. So once I I dug up that, I felt um, confident that I could put it in my illustration. But you know, it's very it's a very arid part of the of, of the world, as you probably know. And um, but the the um, the Babylonians were you know excellent at building, uh, you know, channels to, to bring water in from distant, distant places. And they're also, they also were able to um, engineer a way of getting water up to the top of a, of a step pyramid and then down to irrigate these gardens. And so hmm. that's, that's the hanging part of the battle. It, it's truly a technological feat for that period. They also, according to your book, uh, uh, the Mesopotamians uh, helped in terms of cursive writing, in terms of, you say, irrigation, uh, recording history on tablets. They were pretty advanced for their time, which, according to the timeline, is way back, 2350 before the Common Era. That's a long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Well, the book is spectacular, and it's fun to read, but it's also really cool to look at the uh, at the artwork and I can imagine if you're a kid picking out the little characters in each just incredibly meticulous drawing, it must, must be a lot of fun. I'll have to do that when I reread the book tonight. <laughs> See if I can spot some characters. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that I do when I when I work with, with kids in schools is after I've done my presentation and shown them the artwork, they go back to their classrooms or, or to the art room, and then I'll, I come in and work with them and show them how to create this cut paper art. And um, they they just love it. I mean, we, we bat around some ideas for a theme. Sometimes, um, well, it really worked well with, if you lived here, houses of the world, because I could get kids to make their, you know, a version of their favorite house from the book. With Lost Cities, unfortunately, um, with the pandemic, my last school visit happened uh, the very day that the schools in Massachusetts closed. Mm. So I wasn't even able to go back the next day to work with the kids to, to create their art. So I haven't had much experience talking with kids about lost cities and working with them, but hopefully that will change soon. Well, what a discovery it will be when you return and they return and they can enjoy the book and you're wonderful teaching style. And of course, uh, for people who want to get it, it's available everywhere. Books are sold online, Amazon and all the other places. And uh, your website, why don't you remind us? I know it's a simple one if you know who Giles LaRoche is. Yeah, gileslaroche.com. However, my, my, I have to say my website is very out of date and um, I'm trying to you know find a way of updating it, which isn't so easy, I found out. 
Um, but I do have a Facebook page, and you can see some of a lot of my work there. And and, and uh, do you do you do commissioned work as well? If people are interested in, uh... I do. Um, I have sold a lot of the original art from many of my books, and I, I also have um, given to charities a lot of the original art. In fact, um, I have. Let me show it to you if I can find it here. An illustration from a book I did a very long time ago with uh, an author named April Jones, and uh, one of the illustrations. This is an easy, it was a very easy book to illustrate, just a very, very few words. Um, is this illustration of bicycles. I love it. I love it. He's at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Oh, that's my charity of choice, too, for a lot of the work I do. That's terrific, Giles. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I want people to know that uh, whenever I have a guest on who's written something, uh, I have the guest because I love what he's written or she's written. I fell in love with this book, and we've traded uh, emails now for a couple of months, and I'm so glad we were able to connect here in this new world order on Zoom and uh, talk with you and share with the audience what it's all about. But the book is called Lost Cities. I uh, would highly recommend it for parents, for children, and for those who just love to read about things in the past. It's a great way to uh, use your imagination and learn a lot. So thank you, my friend. This was great. Nice to get to know you. Likewise. Thank you so much for for doing this, Jordan. It was uh, something I've been looking forward to. Here we are. (laughs) Here we are. It was great fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, Giles LaRoche, latest book, Lost Cities. Buy it for yourself. Buy it for your kids. It's a terrific read with some great artwork. I want to thank, as always, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry at Chalk Productions, and all of you for subscribing, downloading, and listening to the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Just a reminder to reach me and connect. You can visit my website, jordanrich.com, where you'll find details about my new book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. Until next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.